By way of catch-up, the events that we're looking at happened about 900 years before Jesus Christ stepped onto the scene. And they happened in about the same 40-mile radius in which Jesus walked and worked. And in that same 40-mile radius walked and worked a man by the name of Elisha, an Israelite man, a farmer by trade who had been uniquely called by God to represent him as his messenger to the people in the world around him. And God uniquely empowered this man named Elisha to perform some pretty impossible miracles. And those miracles would help to punctuate the message that Elisha would be sharing on God's behalf. And those miracles would have a way of convincing people who had nothing to do with God to fall at the feet of God in surrender and in worship. And in this series, that's led us to ask the question, uh, why not us? Why not us? We've seen all of the impossible and incredible things that God did in the life of Elisha. Why not us? Because the last time I checked, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what's true about you. You have been uniquely called by God himself to be a messenger in the world around you. And not only has he empowered you uniquely, he has filled you with the person of the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate source of power. I'm just trying to tell you, Elisha wishes he had what the church of Jesus Christ has today. And so the question is, why don't we see these incredible things happening in our lives and through our lives to help punctuate the message of Jesus Christ so that people who don't care anything about God might fall at his feet convinced he is who he says he is. Why not us? And so we are going to continue to look at this story of Elisha. Now, the last time we saw Elisha, Elisha was, uh, he was loving his haters. Uh, the, the king of Aram um, loved to pick on the nation of Israel. And on one particular occasion that we saw last week, the king of Aram um, is wanting to raid the nation of Israel. But every time he would make a scheme to come in and pick on the weaker nation of Israel, uh, God would let Elisha know what he was going to do. And Elisha would give a heads up to the king of Israel, so they were always one step ahead. Eventually, the king of Aram is so frustrated, finds out Elisha is the one who is foiling his plans. So he sends his entire military to go and get Elisha. When they get to Elisha, God gives Elisha the impossible power. To strike the entire Aramean army with blindness. And then he leads this army into the capital city of Israel, Samaria. And then he drops them off at the doorstep of the king. King comes out and he's salivating like, oh, this best day ever. Should I slaughter all of them? And Elisha says in this incredible gesture of grace, like, no, why don't we instead make them a meal? And then steaks and supper then send them home. And that's exactly what they do. And when the army gets home and they report to the king of Aram what happened. He is so stirred by this gesture of grace. And he hears stories of this miracle that he swears I am done raiding Israel. Never again will my army raid the nation of Israel. And that's where the story stopped. With the end of the raids. 
like. Watch what happens. Um, this is 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn, turn it on or turn to it. Um, and we're going to put the verses up here on the screen. This is true story. Sometime later, this is in the Bible. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and he marched up and laid a siege to Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And I'm like, uh, I'm sorry. He did what now? And also what a jerk-faced dumbhead. Sorry for the language. Um, what a punk move. Okay, let me back up off my friend Rich's great-great-great-grandfather, Ben Haddad, and, and, and just give him at least two points of grace here. Um, point of grace number one, it is entirely possible uh, that the, the, the name Ben Haddad was just a, a generic term used for the legacy of kings in Aram, just like Pharaoh would have been used in Egypt. So that's one point of grace. Uh, second point of grace is... Um, who on earth are we to point the finger at Ben Haddad? Because if you're anything like me, I mean, let's be honest. Let's be honest. I keep doing the most messed up things over and over again. And I keep raiding places and hurting people that I'm supposed to be loving over and over again. I keep doing the same dumb and sinful things over and over again. And God, in his incredible grace, keeps forgiving me over and over and over again. He keeps making me meal after meal after meal of grace and mercy over and over again. And then I come into his house and I praise him. God, I praise you so much for your incredible grace and mercy to me. And then sometime later, I am right back to it. Whatever it might happen to be for you. Right back to the binge. Right back to the incognito searches online. Right back to the shady snaps. Right, right back to the spilling the tea sessions about that one person in my world that I don't like. I'm just saying, and he keeps giving me second chance after second chance and making supper after supper after supper because I should be done or divorced or dead by now. Except for the mercy of God. Angels are reading our stories. They're like, what jerk-faced dumbheads these people are. Doing the same stuff over and over again. And God, you continue to be gracious. I'm just trying to say before we move on, pointing fingers, we are all the king of Aaron. But we're not talking about us. We're talking about King Benji over here. So, sometime after this supper, that should have been a slaughter. Sometime after he swore never to raid Israel again. He says, just like King Pharaoh. I don't know how to be happy if I'm not hurting people. So he mobilizes his entire army and uh, he sends them to siege Samaria, the capital city of Israel, Aram's apparent favorite target. Now, you have to know, uh, a siege was a cruel, cruel act of war. 
where you'd surround an entire city, a weaker city, and um, you would just lock them in and wait. So this is the way it worked. So no one can come in, no one can go out, which means nothing can come in, nothing can go out. This was intended to choke out the supply chain into the city to starve its people and smoke them out in desperate surrender. Because the resources you had in the city at that time, that was all you got to live on. And those would eventually run out very quickly. This was a brutal act of war in which you would slowly watch your enemy suffer until the enemy surrendered to you. And man, this plan worked brilliantly and brutally. Check this out. Um, This is verse number 25. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of the cab of seed pods for five shekels. Meaning the whole economy dives into a deep and dark depression. Demand far outweighs supply and the prices start to skyrocket so much so that a donkey's head, a donkey which have been an unclean animal that the Israelites would never have considered eating ordinarily. And now we're talking about its head which no one would have thought to eat. This would have been part of the body that would have been thrown away. Not just because ill but also because there was no meat on this thing. And all of a sudden it becomes a delicacy that is worth three months worth of your wages. That's how bad things got in Samaria. And it gets darker than that. I'm going to spare you the details for now, but you can feel free to read the next number of verses, which some of you are going to do even while I talk, and I would say feel free to do that. But let me summarize, summarize it by saying, um, it got so bad in Samaria that the people turned to cannibalism. They literally started to eat each other to survive. A couple of women in this particular situation, they cry out to the king of Israel. You've got to do something. You have got to help us with this. And in true King Joram fashion, who I assume was still on the throne in Samaria, he says, don't you put this on me. And then he rips his clothes. Classic Joram move. And by the way, when the king rips his clothes, the lady see beneath his clothes um, the very coarse um, sackcloth that he's wearing, which means the king has resorted to mourning and crying out to the God of Israel, you've got to help us, please deliver us, please do something. But as he hears the details of the story that these ladies share and the desperation that they express to him, Joram becomes so angry. That he decides I am done with this move to try and wait on God. I'm taking matters into my own hands. And what I'm going to do is if everybody else lives, Elisha is not. I'm going to kill God's number one guy. I'm going to take him out. 
Because A, he made the king of Aram angry in the first place by, by spoiling and foiling his plans. Yeah, Joram, to save y'all. And then B, he led his entire army into Samaria. And while we have the opportunity to kill them, he says, nah, make them some supper. And now they're sieging us. If I had done what I wanted to do, which was execute the whole army, there would be no Aramean army to siege us right now. It is Elisha's fault. So I swear that by this time tomorrow, his head is going to be donkey-like separated from his body. So... He sends his assassin to go to Elisha's house to kill him. While Joram trails behind to come and see the damage. Verse number 32. Now, uh, Elisha was sitting in his house. And the elders, the leaders of the city, were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead. But before he arrived, God spoke to Elisha. And Elisha said to the elders... Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, you'll shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him. And while Elisha was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. So the leaders of the city, they they barricade the door. And when King Joram arrives, he finds his boy just ramming his shoulder in futility against the door, trying to get in, but to no avail. Um, By the time the king arrives at Elisha's house, he seems to have calmed down and come to his senses a little bit more. He calls off his hitman and wants to have a conversation with Elisha. And so Elisha comes out. Verse 33, the second part. The king said... This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I've tried this on. And all I have is this weird itch. And the sackcloth is not comfortable. And God is not showing up. I am desperate and I am angry. Why should I wait any longer? more. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in the God of the Bible, and you have any desire to live a life that is pleasing to him, at some point in your story, you will ask this exact question. You will experience this exact thing. Why should I wait on God any longer? Why shouldn't I take matters into my own hands and make it happen? Listen, I've tried this God thing and why should I keep praying about it when I feel like I can fix it and I can show up quicker than God seems to be showing up taking his sweet time? Why should I wait on God any longer? Why should I keep depending on his way of doing things instead of doing things my way and trying to resolve this thing as soon as possible? Why shouldn't I? Swipe on any old somebody and make this desperate loneliness go away. Why should I wait on God any longer? Why shouldn't I lie on my resume? I'm watching everybody else get these dream jobs and they go on these dream vacations while I continue to do the honorable thing and work the right way and wait for the Lord to bless me. And it doesn't seem to be, why should I wait on the Lord any longer? Why shouldn't I pay them back? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But he doesn't seem to be revenging very quickly. 
I feel like I could do a better job than he's doing right now. And all the people in the church are telling me, wait on the Lord. Well, it didn't happen to you. So it's easier for you to say those things to me. Why should I wait on the Lord anymore? Why should I keep praying about it? God seems to be moving way too slow. I feel like I can take care of this right now. This question is going to come up in our lives. Verse number one, 2 Kings 7. Elisha replied to the king, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of finest flour will sell for a shekel. And two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. (laughs) What? This is impossible. Let's just be very clear about that. This is absolutely impossible. The word of the Lord promises that within 24 hours, everything will be over a hundred times less expensive than it is right now. In less than 24 hours, the economy is going to thrive and hope is going to be restored. There are not enough economic experts. There are not enough global summits to pull something like this off. That's impossible. You don't go from a cannibal level depression into a fire sale in less than 24 hours. Unless God says so. Unless God's word says it. And while we're on that point, I cannot say this to you strongly enough. You have got to have a word from the Lord. You have got to have a word from the Lord. You have got to have a word from the Lord about that impossible or desperate situation that you are either experiencing right now or you are going to experience sooner than you know. You have got to have a word from the Lord. You have got to have a promise from the Lord to hold on to in your valley of lonely. Or in your valley of struggle, in your valley of loss, you have got to know what has God spoken about this situation. Because if you don't have a promise or a word from the Lord to carry into your impossible situation, you are going to end up in a desperate scenario like Joram did and the people in the city of Samaria. You are going to find yourself taking shortcuts desperately and destructively to try to make it Work. You have got to have a word from the Lord. And guess what? Here's the incredible thing. You don't need Elisha for that. There are 66 books 
of what God has to say of the promises God has made to his people. We have access to the words of the Lord right now. What's in here is what is going to sustain you and carry you through the deepest and darkest valleys of depression and sadness and loneliness and loss. You have got to have a word from the Lord. You have got to come back to this book and ask the question, God, what do you have to say about my impossible or desperate situation? Verse number two, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning, the the king's personal assistant, said to Elisha, the man of God, look, I mean, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? Implication, no. This is impossible. Well, you will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha. But you will not eat any of it. Because... The problem is never the promise. The problem is always the person. The problem is never what God has said. The problem is never the word of God. The problem is always on the receiving end of That word. I don't know if I mentioned this to you a little bit ago, but you have got to have a word from the Lord about that impossible or desperate situation that you're either in now or you are going to be in before you know. You've got to know what has God said about this. But you, it is not enough to just have the word of the Lord. You must believe the word of the Lord. You must believe what God has spoken, even when nothing in your body seems to agree with it, even when nothing in the economy seems to agree with it, even when nothing in your history seems to agree with it, even when nothing in your feeling seems to agree with it. That is going to be the ultimate test in the midst of every counter experience. Am I going to believe the word of the Lord that has been given to me? Otherwise, we'll show up to church and we'll hear things and we'll rate certain things and we'll ignore certain things. The question is, am I going to believe the word of God against all odds and against all of my experiences and against all of my expertise and against what all of the professionals have said? If you are not enjoying or experiencing the promise of God, especially in the deepest and darkest seasons, the problem is not the promise. The problem is always going to be on our end and how we hold that word and how we believe that word. And if we're not careful, we are going to have an abundance of his words. But just like the king's personal assistant, we'll be like, yeah, I hear you. But I mean, even if God, I mean, could that really happen the way he says? And some of us in this room are sitting with the word of God that says peace beyond all understanding is yours in Christ 
Jesus, that is a promise for the person who's walking through the deepest valley of worry, debilitating anxiety, and peace is the promise of the living God. Yeah, but I mean, I hear that, but you know, there's so many other um, mitigating circumstances and expert things that, yeah, I mean, you've got to put in some work first, and I'm not telling you not to put in work, but I'm telling you whatever work you put in is not a contingency. Contingency on this promise. This promise is not dependent on any of the work you could possibly do. Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7. Oh no, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is available to you. Well, yeah, but, but you've got to understand. I mean, you, first you have to unravel this, and then you've got to add that, and then you've got to have a global summit with some experts, and then you've got. So I guess really what I'm saying is this couldn't happen overnight. Oh? You may end up watching other people experience it, but you won't taste of it. Because it's not just that you have a word from the Lord, it's that you believe what God says against all history or odds or expertise. I don't know that that could happen. Which, by the way, I'm not going to get carried away, I think. Um, It is amazing. If you poll the church... Most of us will believe that by the power of the living God, that I can be forgiven of every single mess and sin that I've ever committed over the course of my entire life, and that my eternal address could be changed to heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. I believe that. And if you ask me, how long does it take for that to happen in my life? Most of us would say, no, no, no. But the peace of God which transcends, no, no, that one, you have to go left for about 17,000 miles, and then you got to wait, come on, let's be consistent, on which side of his promises do we lie? There are certain things we'll believe, no problem, and then there are others we're like, "Mm." the problem is not the promise. And I'm telling you right now how you hold and believe the words of God, particularly in the deepest, darkest seasons, have a bearing on how you experience them. All things work together for the good, for those that love the Lord. That's a word. That's a word. That's the word of the Lord. The question is, how do I hold that word, especially in the deepest, darkest seasons? Do I live with this reality like this is terrible? It doesn't feel great. It's awful. But what towers above all of those things is the reality that God is working this out for something even better that I could possibly experience and imagine that God is in the midst of working on something right now. It's amazing. Sometimes I will watch a basketball game when I already know the outcome. It doesn't completely take away all of my anxiety. I'm still like, who make the shot, Jordan? I know he makes the shot. It doesn't completely take away my my anxiety, my my panic, my, my concern. But the towering reality is I know how this game ends. And he has said all things work together for the good, including this. And that is the word I'm going to believe in this Season. It's not just that you have the word, it's how you hold that word, especially in the most challenging seasons. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'm asking you, is the spirit of the living God in this room? 
Let me rephrase the question. Is the spirit of the living God in this room? Let me rephrase the question for those in the back. Is the spirit of the living God in this room? So then why are some of you going to walk out of here with chains? The problem is not the promise. Yeah, but I mean, you really think like just you could just, he could, if he said it. Within 24 hours, an entire economy in the deepest depression. I don't understand the mechanics of that miracle. So therefore, I'm going to put God's word on trial and decide whether it measures up against my experience and my expertise. I'm just saying the problem is never the promise. Don't let the king's assistant be you. And stop distracting me. We've got to move. Verse number three. Now, the author is obviously having a little break from reality. And he just whiplashes us into a different scene. There were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. And they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there. And we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender ourselves. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we die. So uplifting. Um, Now, you got to know, these guys are are not Naaman. They are not the military mastermind in Aram. They are nobodies. Um, So when it's discovered that they have this disease that affects the nerve endings beneath the surface of the skin and start to cover you with sores and discoloration, when it's discovered that they have leprosy, they don't get a nice note from the king sending them to Israel to go get healed up. Oh no, they get a boot from the community and they're relegated to live outside the city gates. Um, There was some, some dark and sad truths or rumors that were developed around the disease of leprosy. Uh, One of them was that leprosy is this highly infectious disease. So if you get near somebody who has it, you're going to get it too, so watch out. The second thing that was believed about leprosy was that it was an evidence that God had cursed the leper. This person or his parents or his grandparents did something so bad that God is so angry and done with them that he cursed them with this disease called leprosy. So when somebody started to show signs of leprosy, you can imagine what the community would do. They would say, A, you were highly infectious. We don't want to get your yuck on us. Two, you have done something that God completely loathes. And we don't want to get struck by virtue of proximity to you. So they would kick them outside the city gates where there would be beggars scrounging for food. And scraps from anyone who would consider throwing something in their general direction. And so when there's a famine of this magnitude in the city, these people are going to die first. Right? Because those scraps that used to come to them are now priceless in the gates of the city. So uh, they have this desperate conversation with each other. Um, If we go into the city, there's a famine there. Scraps are too expensive. Uh, We're going to die. If we stay here, we don't have anything. We're going to starve. We're going to die. If we go to the Aramean army and surrender, uh, we're probably going to die. But at least we know there's food there. 
case scenario, they feed us. Worst case scenario, they put us out of our misery and we die like we were going to do anyway. So all or nothing on three, one, two, three, and off they go. Verse number five. Uh, At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, come on God, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian king so that they can attack us. Verse 7, so they got up the entire army and they fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys with their heads on and their bodies together and everything. And they left the camps as they were and ran for their lives. I'm just saying, if God has promised it, believe it. While you're worrying, he's working. Don't be so arrogant or small-minded to say stuff like, well, I just can't see how this can happen. You don't have to see how. You just need to believe now. This is incredible. And boy, can we just pause and note, God seems to really love chariots. Like that's just everywhere. It's time for Elijah to go home. Chariots of fire. You know, last week, Elisha's surrounded. God sends an army of chariots and they surround the Aramean army. This week, apparently the Arameans hear some phantom sounds of chariots and they go booking. And I can't help but wonder if it's not the same army that they experienced last week and God just allows them to hear his army. And also, how loud does the sound of these chariots have to be that these dudes go running and leave their horses and all of this stuff and just run for their lives. I'm just saying, stop worrying your pretty little self about how God's going to pull this off. He has ways you could never think up. Come on. If all of us got together and tried to figure out how God would pull this off in 24 hours, would we have come up with this? So we need to stop acting like, well, we've thought through all the considerations and the possibilities, so therefore God's word can't be good. Maybe for them and maybe then, but not for me and not now. Verse number eight. Ooh, come on, boys. The men who had leprosy, uh, they reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents and they did not ask anybody. They just ate and drank. And then they took silver and gold and clothes and they went off and hid them. And then they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and they hid them also. These dudes are feasting like it's 1999, right? In the middle of a famine. They start stashing stuff uh, for themselves. Crazy wealth they start to accumulate. They're grabbing gold and and crypto and NFTs and whatever else until they can't carry any more. And that was just from one tent. One tent. So they go and they stash it, they invest it, talk to their financial advisors, whatever, and then they come back for more. They are instant millionaires. From desperate to dirty rich in minutes. Stop worrying about how God's going to pull off his promise. Worry about do you have a word from the Lord about that situation. And are you clinging to it like it's the truest thing in the universe. But then something beautiful shifts in them, y'all. Something so glorious happens to them. 
when they remember what it was like to be desperate back home. Verse 9. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Our own flesh and blood are suffering behind the walls of that city. And we found this life-saving stash. It is wrong for us to keep it to ourselves. How beautiful is that coming from the most wrongly and unjustly treated people in the entire city? Yeah, they hated us back home. And yeah, they treated us like trash back home. But if somebody there suffers and dies overnight while we have the power to save their lives, then maybe, boys, maybe then we might actually be cursed. So they go in the middle of the night to the city. And since they could not go in, they shouted the news from outside the gates. Verse 10. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp and no one was there. Not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys with their heads on. And the tents left just as they were. Verse 11. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. By the way, I love the simplicity of their report. They have no idea how any of this happened. They have no idea about the sound of chariots in the middle of the night. All they know is the camp was empty, but the tents were full. And then the word started to spread until it eventually got back to the king. And King Joram hears this and he's not buying it. This dude lived as a slave to fear. Verse number 12. Then the king got up in the night and he said to his officers, Ah, I'll tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we're starving. So they've left the camp to hide in the countryside thinking they will surely come out. And then we will take them alive and get into The city. It's a trap, says the king. I see what they're doing. Could not smoke us out, so they're trying to go with the old food in an abandoned camp move. By the way, this right here is the goodness of our God. The goodness of our God always seems a little bit too good to be true. There's no way. What's the catch? God, how are you trying to trick me? That's one of the reasons some of us don't believe the promises of God. Like, yeah, I feel like I need to do something though. Meet you halfway and whatnot. Verse number 13, one of his officers answered, have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Which is just a very concerning statement to make. Because I'm like, where are the other horses? Well, we know. It was a famine. Their plight will be like that of all of Israel left here. Yes. They will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what has happened. If they stay, they die. If they go, worst case scenario, they die. 
So these guys, these trackers, they go and check it out. By the way, that's my words to some of you today. Um, You've been standing on the verge of the promises and the word of God for so long. Just kind of staring in with questions. And uh, this is what I would say to you. Come check it out. Now, don't get me wrong. Like if your life is going swimmingly smooth, if you're a good swimmer, right? And your soul is satisfied with the depths of joy and you are confident about what your forever and ever and ever looks like. You are good. I'm like, don't worry about it. Stay where you are. But if there's any angle or aspect of your soul that is experiencing even the faintest famine, then I want to say to you, what's the worst thing that could happen? If you stay, your soul starves. Might as well go check it out. Is what God has said true? What's the worst thing that could happen? That is what I'm saying to some of you. Check it out. And then come see me in two weeks. Give it a try. Verse number 14. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. Uh, He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. Verse 15. They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with a clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. That's hilarious. We'll run faster without shirts, you know, and they're gone, man. So the messenger returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp somebody of the Arameans. So a seer of the finest flour sold for a shekel and two seers of barley sold for a shekel as the word of the Lord had said. (laughs) Less than 24 hours. Who would have thunk And there are now more resources in Samaria than there had been before. There is an end to the famine and God makes the enemy pay for it. By the way, some of y'all need to know when the enemy comes, don't be too afraid. He's just delivering goods from heaven. He's just, if all things work together for the good, when the enemy shows up, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Thank you for delivering that. I just don't know how yet. Don't worry about how the Lord will do the impossible thing that his word has said. Believe him and hold on to it. Oh, and then the story ends with uh, the people rushing to go ravage the camp of the Arameans. And on their way out, they trample the king's assistant. Because all of the promises of God will come to pass. The question is on which side of them will you end up? I cannot encourage you strongly enough to be on the enjoying, stampeding towards the camp side of things. He didn't experience the promises of God because he was too logical, rational, practical, experienced to believe it. What an incredible story. What an incredible God. So many incredible principles. Um, 
But before I let you go, here's the one I did not want us to miss. And it was tucked away in the story of the lepers. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the reality. You are just a starving leper who found the soul-saving stash. That's your story. You were dying in your sins, condemned as an enemy of the king of kings and sentenced to spend eternity outside the city gates of heaven. And there was nothing you could do. You stay where you are, you die. You run back into the city to all of your friends to see if they can give you enough affirmation or approval to make your life meaningful and to make your eternity different. But there was nothing they could do. They're starving too. Your only option, fall at the feet of Jesus in surrender. Worst case scenario, you die anyway. Faith case scenario, he shows you mercy. And come on Easter in May, when you got there, what did you find? I'll tell you what you found. In the middle of the night, while we were all sleeping, In desperation, while we were all sleeping in despair, Jesus defeated the enemy of sin and the enemy of death that had sieged us and surrounded us all of our lives. What did you find? I'll tell you what you found. An empty camp and tents full of forgiveness and freedom and grace and power and joy and love. That's what you found. The greatest miracle of all. More than your soul could possibly carry. More than your soul could possibly consume in a lifetime. That's your story if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And the only question now is how wrong would it be for you to keep that soul saving stash to yourself? When you know that you have family and friends and co-workers who are striving and they are struggling and they are starving. Trying to make life work and you hear it in the stories they tell you. You hear it in the desperation of all of the things that are happening in their lives. How wrong would it be? For lepers who found the source of food and life not to go back and shout to everybody else, y'all. I found joy, I found forgiveness, I found freedom, and I couldn't earn it. I was just hanging around, and by the grace of God, this is what he has done for me. I love how this story ends. And oh, by the way, no, you don't have to do anything, it's free. Because isn't that the gospel? The gospel is not good advice telling people they need to do this or that or the other. The gospel is good news. Announcing to people that Jesus Christ has done all of the work. 
And he has provided everything you need for your soul to thrive. All you need to do is go collect like I collected some. I'll go with you. And I'm just asking, when was the last time you told somebody in your life a story of what Jesus has done for you in the soul-saving stash of forgiveness and freedom and joy? We should be talking about it more than anybody else. This place should be released and we should go back into the gates of the city and the county of Kosciuszko and just tell anybody and everybody we can. And we don't have to be experts at it. I don't know. Empty grave, full heart. You should go get some. Man, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song uh, together. But I pray that if, if there is a word that the Lord wants you to hold on to or believe, that you would believe and enjoy his promises. And that we would go and share with everybody else what it is that we are experiencing. And so... Jesus, thank you for defeating sin and death. Thank you for opening up the tents of joy and freedom and, and hope for us who were starving. Help us to believe your word. Help us to enjoy it. Help us to want to share the promises with the people in our world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.